Welcome to Earthly, a Clemson University podcast discussing issues of agriculture, horticulture, nature, and design impacting the world, nation, state of South Carolina, and even your home. Here's your host, Jonathan Veet. Humans have forever turned to nature for artistic inspiration. The earliest cave paintings are at least 64,000 years old and depict images of wild animals and even the heavens. More recently, photographer Ansel Adams, poet Wendell Berry, sculptor Andy Goldsworthy, and movie director Werner Herzog have all produced great art by musing on the material world. My guest on Earthly continues in that tradition. Todd Anderson collaborates with scientists and travels to some of the world's most remote environments to see what they see only with the eye of an artist. Then Anderson creates prints using woodcuts to capture moments in time as landscapes are altered by rising temperatures. Anderson is going to tell us about his process, inspiration, and what he hopes his art tells us about the natural world. Todd, welcome to Earthly. Before we talk about your work, tell us about yourself. It sounds like you have two passions, the outdoors and art. How did they start and how did you decide to combine them? Hi, Jonathan. Uh, Thanks so much for having me uh, on your podcast. I'm really honored to be here. I would say about a dozen, 13 years ago is when those two things converged, my love of the outdoors and um, my artwork as an artist. So I'm a visual artist. And for the last about dozen years now, I've been trying to answer like one simple question, which is how can I best address the climate crisis through my art practice? And it's taken me back to kind of my roots in the outdoors and uh, my passion for, for wilderness environments. Before I became a professor and went back to graduate school or went to graduate school, um, I was an outdoors person. I was a rock climber. And um, I spent about five, six years of my life pretty dedicated to um, just that one pursuit. And then at a certain point in my life, uh, you know, you, responsibilities creep in, and uh, I ended up going back to school and deciding to follow my passion, my true passion, which is art. So I'd say about a dozen, dozen years ago, I came across a scientific paper about glacial retreat in Glacier National Park. And I learned um, through this science paper about how the park at one point in time, when it was formed about 1910, 1912, had about 120 glaciers. And within the next 20 to 30 years, those glaciers would all cease to exist. And so I spent time um, around a lot of glaciers during my, um, my youth when I was more of an outdoors person. And um, so I was really passionate about those types of places. And, but as an artist, the question that kind of crept in really quickly when I was reading that paper is I wonder which artists are documenting um, these glaciers before they're gone in Glacier National Park. And um, so I spent the next month or two kind of looking into different artists and looking into uh, the science behind what was happening up at that park. And I learned a couple things. Um, one was that things were changing really fast in Glacier National Park. And the second thing I learned was um, I just could not find any artists that were documenting what was happening. And so I decided right then and there that um, if nobody else was going to do that, that I should. Some people might be wondering why I'm having an artist on a science podcast. But as I said in the intro, you collaborate closely with scientists and your work sort of complements theirs. Talk about those 
collaborations and and how how those ideas come to you? Yeah, well, it's it's about collaboration. That really gets to the heart of it, and it's about trying to bridge a gap between art and science. That's really what I'm trying to do, and. I'm making this artwork and working on these projects collaboratively with other artists and scientists, and writers about different parts of the planet where we can, we can see the effects of climate change on the environment. And so it should go without saying that um, I cannot find those places or I correctly identify those places without the help of science uh, or a scientist. And so um, I use consensus-based um, kind of scientific papers and reports that identify um, parts of the planet where we can see um, climate change happening. And then as an artist or as a team of artists, um, we'll kind of study the, study the map, so to speak, um, try and prioritize which spaces are most important. Um, and then thirdly, which is the most important, is identify a scientist who might want to work with us on doing some convergent research on, on that particular place. So that's kind of how it all, all begins. It's just reading um, science journals. And, and um, now at this point, about 12 years in, I've been fortunate enough to work with a, a number of art uh, scientists. Um, I can kind of just get advice from them as well, just because um, out of friendships. So, Todd, it's not very often that artists are interested in science or have a deep um, deep interest in science as it, as it appears you do. Talk a little bit about that. What, where does that come from? Well, it comes from a, a few places. I think um, two primary places. One's just kind of, you know, this might sound a little silly, but keep in mind I'm, a, I'm an artist, but it comes, comes from my heart in terms of really understanding the truth about the world and the physical truths. So part of that is like when I go into a space as an artist, um, I might be looking at colors, you know, atmospheric perspective, you know, all sorts of kind of arty things. But at the same time, it's like trying to develop my understanding of those places through the lens of what we know about these places scientifically. Um, so I think that's that's part of it. So I work at Clemson University, as you know, and we're a land-grant institution, and I'm a product of public school systems, you know, in Minnesota and Texas, and then the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then the University of New Mexico-Albuquerque. And so my whole life, I've worked um, or I've studied at land-grant institutions. And part of our charter is how do we conduct our research in a way that's applicable to other people? Like, what's the contribution that we're going to make to society? And so there are a lot of ways of doing that. Um, there's diff lots of different types of research that can be can be done and fulfill that mission. But for me as an artist, I'm trying to, it's important to me to make artwork that can connect with the general public. And so that's kind of part of it, you know? So if I can use science as a, as a kind of a bridge to meet like my audience halfway or part of the way to kind of bring them into the world of art, um, then mission accomplished. But part of it's a big part of it's that responsibility of, of giving back in this case to the state of South Carolina. What are some of the projects you've worked on and what are some of the places that you've visited? Boy, that's, um, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> are there some that you're, you're especially proud of or excited about? I would say the most exciting place that, uh, folks are most interested in is Antarctica. So that was 2019. That was through the auspices of a National Science Foundation grant 
um, which is called the Artists and Writers uh, Program Grant. And so in Antarctica, um, I was fortunate enough to go down to the continent and then embed myself with different science teams to observe science in the field and then also try and document that. So that was probably one of the more exciting places. Let's see, from there, it's been from and from the Arctic up in the, uh, Canada, Canadian Arctic to Africa and throughout the American West. Um, so I don't know. I, I haven't counted, but maybe seven, eight kind of major projects at this point. So there seems to be a theme to the places you go. They're cold and they have glaciers. Is that part of a larger project? It is. Yeah. So and it, it goes back to my roots as an outdoors person and traveling you know, throughout the Sierra Nevadas is where I spent a lot of time in my early 20s, um, kind of running around those mountains and on those glaciers. And so part of that is just continuing that kind of love of those that particular place. I love alpine environments. But over the years, the things that I've learned about glaciers, it's just kind of been driving it even more. Todd, do you work in other ecosystems? And I am working on a project right now in the Florida glades, um, which, you know, um, is for the first time I'm not, you know, either working someplace super remote. Um Part of uh, what I've enjoyed about those alpine environments or the deserts of the Southwest is the solitude that kind of comes from those places. There's something kind of neat about the work involved in getting to some of those spots. Um, like some of these glaciers, you know, it might take a day of hiking to get to them. I think my longest day of hiking was, um, I think I logged almost 25 miles that day, um, just getting to glaciers and back. And so there's something about seeing some of these places that, um, like right now in this time of life, I'm fortunate enough to be able to get to. And so that's kind of what I'm focusing on. It's funny you ask that question because I was just talking to a scientist, Jason Briner, who teaches at the University of Buffalo. And he's my age. He's 50. And he's um, one of the real leading authorities in the world on ice sheets in Greenland. He was talking about how as he's getting older, he's becoming less interested in going to these far-flung places and starting to work closer at home. And, and, I, and I see that happening, too, to myself as time advances. Um, like all great rock climbers, you know, they, they rock climb and then they get to a certain age and then they become kayakers. And once they, and then once they can't whitewater kayak anymore, you know, cause they're getting a little older, then they turn into, um, fly fishermen. And so right now I'm still in the rock climbing phase of my uh, research as an artist. So I'm still trying to get out as far as I can, but I know the day's coming where I'm going to have to slow down a little bit. I didn't know about that evolution. That's uh that's funny and it makes sense. I, uh, there was a time when I wasn't afraid to get on my roof and now I am. So, you know, the older you get, the more fear sets in, the more you have to lose. A lot of the landscapes you focus on are changing rapidly because of increasing temperatures. So what's your goal in trying to capture those places in your art? Yeah, that's two primary things. One is to document these to, for kind of in memoriam, you know, like how do we, um, this is a really important time and period of, you know, the human species, I'd say right now. Um, I think we're really fortunate to be alive right now and to see what's happening um, because it's a great challenge that we get to work on. And that's a privilege. And one day um, with art, one of the things I'm hoping to happen with my art is that future generations are going to see, see this work. So like, 
artwork, you know, and when it works, you know, it ends up in collections like the U.S. Library of Congress, Metropolitan Museum of Art, places like that. And one of the things that we ha what happens when we go to museums now is we might look at an old painting from, let's say, the 19th century. And it gives us those paintings or those, those old works of art give us some insights into life in a past time. And some of the things that other people are thinking about, some of the things that society cared about. And so what I'm trying to do with art is to have a conversation, not only here and now, but one with future generations of like to talk about in my own very, very small way, talk about some of the things that we cared about as a species. So that's, that's one of them. The second thing and more in the immediate is how do we have conversations right now? How do we involve ourselves or how do I, let's just say this, how do I involve myself in a national conversation? I think all researchers want to be relevant to the times in which we live. And that's what I'm, that is a passion of mine. And so by making artwork about some of the things that are happening in terms of the global climate crisis is one way of involving myself in that discussion. Um, and at the same time, it's trying to, um, kind of going back to what I was talking about before, bridging this gap. If if I can find a scientist who's doing this really important work, let's say in, in Antarctica or in Greenland, um, and then give that scientist a, a different platform, it might not necessarily be a larger platform, but it's another platform that can expand their audience and expand their reach of the things that they care about. Well, then it's like, I've done my job. So, so part of it's understanding my spot as a, as a bit player in a much, much larger conversation. Let's get down to the nitty gritty of, of what you do. Talk about the, talk about the printmaking and the bookmaking process. Well, I, I like to kid that I live in the 17th century. Um, cause I, <laughs> I, I mean, I take pieces of wood and I carve them by hand and I do this really slowly and I print images off these carved pieces of wood onto pieces of paper using an old-fashioned press. It's the same press that, let's say, somebody like uh, Francisco Goya may have been printing with, or Albert Durer. Eh, a little different from Durer's, but for the most part, the same thing. It's it's all manual. It's um, time-honored. It's a, a tradition. It's a, it's a craft in and of itself. For most of the work that you'll kind of see of mine online, um, or in these books that we're making, um, they're what are called reduction woodcuts. The process is revealed in the name of reduction. I take one piece of wood and I will transfer a drawing onto that piece of wood and then start carving it out. And I'll carve out a small bit and then stop and ink the board up, maybe in a light color. Let's say maybe like a yellow from the sky or a light blue from the sky or something like that. And I'll print that onto a piece of paper and then I'll do that again. So I'll end up printing this, this one image that's partially developed on, let's say, 20 sheets of paper. So all the paper prints look the same. They just have this sky blue on it. So then I'll take my block once I'm done with that and clean it off and carve more out of that exact same block. This time I'll ink it up in a slightly different color. And I'll go back to those sheets of paper I already printed on. And I'll start printing on top of what I printed on before. And so what happens is I have maybe 20 sheets of paper that slowly get one layer of color on top of another. But meanwhile, I'm carving out my wood block. And so I can kind of decide what gets covered up and what doesn't get covered up. 
And over time, I end up making an image out of that. So usually these are about like 10 to 13 runs of where I just stop and we'll add different colors. And eventually a, an image will reveal itself. I print on archival materials. So um, what's called washi, which is just a Japanese form of paper. Um, that's what we call paper in Japan. And I'll take those prints once they're done and I'll do two things with them. Um, some of them, I'll frame them as individual artworks exactly what we'd expect. You go to a museum, you see maybe a, a print in a frame, that's what I'll do. But I'll also take some of those prints from that pile and I'll actually use them as physical pages for large-scale books. And these books are what we call artist books. And so they're made by artists like myself, and bookmakers, and it's completely archival and they're considered artworks in and of themselves. So the actual prints become the pages of the books. And so most of these books, when we open them up, they might be about two feet tall and maybe three feet wide. It's kind of the typical size book that um, my collaborators and I will make. The small edition of books, usually around 12 to 15 books. Um, that's all there will be. Um, we work with um, different binders. Uh, there are great artists and book, bookmakers in the country. Um, and right now we've been working with, uh, John Demerit in Oakland, California. And, uh, I think John's done the last three or four books where he'll take our prints or prints like mine and we'll print out on, um, washi, um, with inkjet, like, you know, the scientist essay and whatnot, and, you know, our colophon, all the, all the pages of the books. And we'll send it, send those to our bookmaker, John, and he will kind of, craft them into an, a, a large um, book. So the books themselves, I don't make. Um, I'm part of the design process, but I don't physically make those books. That's a completely different skill set that I don't have. How long does it take to, let's say, make one print on average? I know that it depends on the complexity of the project, but give us an idea. Um, usually about four to six weeks, I would say. Um, you know, I do have a day job, so, um, but I would say about four to six weeks worth of hours. And so um, a lot of these projects, you know, they'll take us like a few years. You know, we might do a couple of years of field work. And a field work might be, um, especially when we're in the mountains, we might have just like a narrow window of a couple months out of each year where the weather is such that we can go there. Um, so we might do a field trip or some field work, you know, for three weeks, one year, the next year we'll go back because you kind of learn the first time you go. And so you, the second, usually the second field um, expedition is the most productive because I figure out what, where we need to go, what we need to do. Um, and then I take that information, mainly photographs at this point is what I do because we're just moving too quickly through the mountains. It's, it can be really hard to sit down and draw in the mountains <laughs> i've been snowed on in august um and I'll, and I'll take that i'll take that information or all that field work back to my studio and then tra start translating into the artworks yeah so it's a very slow process so this woodcut that you're working on this wood is is um it's being whittled away over time um and it strikes me that that's maybe a little bit metaphorical uh, because the landscapes that you are capturing are also um, disappearing. Bingo. Exactly. That's one of the reasons I started with reduction woodcuts is the process of reducing a woodcut to make an image 
where by the time you get to the end, you can't repeat it. It's completely gone. The woodblock's gone. It's just mirroring conceptually like a glacier, you know, retreating and disappearing. Once it's gone, it's gone. It's not coming back. And so that's not the only reason I use uh, reduction woodcuts for a lot of my work on glacial retreat, but it is part of it. That is definitely part of it. Um, mainly it's that, um, mainly I, I can add like mainly the reduction woodcut is an organic language. We know that a piece of wood is just dead cellulose, but at one point in time, it was a living, breathing thing. It was a tree. There's something, there's a spiritual aspect to a block of wood. There's a warmth to a block of wood. It's knowing that it's something that once had life. And using that material, to me, is, is really meditative and it's really important. Um, one of the, there's an old story, uh, I don't know if it's true, that Traditional Japanese woodcut artists, what they used to do is before they started a woodcut, they would ink up their block of wood, let's say with black ink, and they would roll the black ink onto the wood and print it onto a sheet of paper. And when they'd pull the sheet of paper off, it would not be a big black rectangle, as we'd expect, but a subtle wood grain that you would see on this print. And they would take that print and just throw it in a drawer and forget about it. And then they would clean the block, get their drawing out, start carving, and eventually make a print. And once they're done with their image, they would put it on a table, and then they would go back to that drawer and pull out that print of the wood grain of the block, and then sit down and look at the two, their finished artwork, their picture, and then that wood grain of where the block started. And then have a very serious conversation with themselves of, did I make things better or worse? Did I honor the block did I honor the tree that this came from? Did, was I sufficient in my, you know, with my work? I feel the same way. I, I love that urban legend. I don't know if it's quite, tr if it is an urban legend, or if it's true, but that is something that I really adhere to. Well, whether or not it's true, it's uh, it's poignant. And speaking of poignancy, art can be moving, and uh, nature can be moving, and of course, art about nature can be especially moving. But what do you think the prints themselves accomplish for the audience that maybe is not accomplished by a photographer? Well, I, th I think it depends upon how photography is handled. So a camera in the hands of a, a trained artist, like one of my collaborators, Ian Van Collar, um, is every bit an artwork as anything else, um, as a, a, a woodcut. I think what artworks do is they kind of engender an openness to a larger discussion. It doesn't always work, but that's what I strive for as an artist, is to engender a conversation. Um, artworks usually don't require any type of specialized knowledge or language, um, but rather just a willingness to maybe ponder, to, to, to try and take it in. Um, I always think that um, artworks really just can do one of two things. As an, as an artist, I can do one of two things. I can try and make people feel something, and I can try and say something to my audience, one of, one of two things. And so when, when things work, that's a pretty powerful thing is if you can in, communicate with an audience but also try and make them feel something. That's what all artists are after, <laughs> photographers, woodcut artists. And it's so, like I said, it doesn't always work, but that's what, what you go for. 
And um, when it works, it's really special. There's a lot of delayed gratification in what you do. You're creating art for future generations to see a snapshot in time that happened years before them. It's not like you're Taylor Swift and you get to play music and you look out on a vast crowd of people dancing and get that immediate gratification. What is that like for you? I think that's one of the one of the benefits of collaborating with others, whether it's a scientist or a fellow artist, is it's that immediate kind of conversation, those immediate responses we can have as a team of um and you know, sometimes it's just reminding each other to have faith in like what it is we're doing will have some type of or at least it can have some type of impact in the future. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's um, a lot of faith <laughs> in, in uh, the art field. That's for sure. Todd, where can people go to see your work, physically hold it and see it? Is that, is that possible? It is. Um, well, the, the easiest, um, and maybe the closest for, for you and for folks uh, from around here in South Carolina is you can go to Clemson University. Uh, they have a couple of our artist books, and you can go to the library and um, can't check them out and take them home, but they'll pull them out and probably give you some white gloves, and you can flip through the pages yourself. So that's um, really special for me is um, having the place I work that's collected a couple of these books. Um, other than that, you can go to a Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, you can call ahead and say you want to see, you know, uh, some of this work and they will pull it out. You can, you get to go to a little special room. It's all free, free of charge. You get to go to a little special room and a curator will bring the book out and you can do the exact same thing there in New York. Um, same thing, U S library of Congress and a uh, number of universities, um, like Stanford and, um, I think, I think Yale as well, but, um, uh, Asheville Museum of Art is another good place to go right now. Um, they have a few um, framed works. Um, I'm not sure if they're on display right now. Uh, one of the things that's kind of funny with um, as an artist is I, I, don't, I don't really ever know what's happening with my art. So when the, for example, like when the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, bought or acquired the book, the, our first kind of project. Um, which was really great. And about, I'd say eight months later, I got a call from a broker I work with in New York. And he said, Oh, Hey, your work's going to be on display at the Met uh, next week. <laughs> I said, really? I'm like, really? Okay. Um, you know, cause they don't, they don't really call the artists and tell you any of those types of things. But for most of those places, um, you can just simply just call them and they will get the work out for you. And it's always really easy to see. What does it feel like to have um, one of your books in an esteemed place such as the Metropolitan Museum of Art? Um, it's, I guess it's difficult to, to describe. Um, it's very personal, obviously. I mean, like the, the book at the um, Metropolitan, that's, you know, with another artist, Ian Van Collar, that helped make that book, Bruce Crownover, that is in that book, and then a great scientist by the name of Nancy Mahoney. So I'm just one of four, you know, and so it's not like, it's more of like a an accomplishment of friends, if that makes sense. 
But um, I, I can tell you that when, when I did see the work, because um, up, um, you know, I, you know, I went to the nearest bathroom in the Met and I cried. Yeah. Just went into a stall and cried. Who could blame you? It's, it's, it was, it was very moving. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the classes you teach at Clemson. Well, I'm a time of transition actually at Clemson, um, starting next fall in 2024, I'm sliding over into, uh, the college of arts and humanities new, uh, department of interdisciplinary studies. So I'm, re- I'm really excited about that. It's going to, it's an opportunity to move my teaching more toward, um, specific to the global climate crisis. One of my favorite classes this semester is um, uh, for the Honors College and the National Scholars Program here at Clemson University. It's called Art and Climate Change in the Arctic. And this is a class um, that I was lucky enough to develop for the National Scholars Maymester um, program. And Maymester is um, where we, it's a special seminar class that culminates in the month of May in doing some field work, um, going someplace. And so for this class, I'm um, combining um, art, visual art, with um, information about the climate crisis, all specific to the, to the Arctic. And in May, the students and I are going to go to Greenland, and we're going to bear witness to some of these um, things that we're learning now um, in terms of uh, retreating glaciers, some of the indigenous artworks that are being made up there. It should be a really uh, spectacular um, trip for the students. And are the students going to make art based on that trip when they return? Well, they're making art right now this semester. So the classes, it's about threefold. We're we're looking at artwork and we're trying to better understand visual art. Um, And through experiential means, meaning like we're actually, actually, actually having lessons in drawing. We're studying some of the effects of the climate crisis right now on specific to the Arctic. And uh, the third component of that class is where you are actually bringing in as guest speakers, clinical psychologists who specialize in the climate crisis. So we can have conversations about how do we grapple with some of these challenges in a healthy way. Um, it's a really special class. And I don't think uh, this is my 20th year as a professor and I, feel pretty confident saying, I don't think I could teach a class like this anywhere else besides Clemson University. It's really, really special. So, yeah, I feel like my last 12, 15 years of work as a teacher and as an artist have brought me to this moment. It's, it's really special. Yeah. How does your art and your teaching, how do they inform each other? Well, my art and my teaching inform each other in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, one is for the last, I would say, five years, I've been incrementally changing my curriculum to better reflect my research. And so that's, um, you know, like developing um, units on global challenges is what we call it at the university here of like, what are some of the pressing issues as a planet that, are, that we're facing? And um, so for me, that's been talking about the climate crisis um, more in my curriculum. And of course, the big move now is to start working on interdisciplinary coursework as a teacher to kind of combine those two, the visual arts, perhaps with cinema, um, perhaps with visual rhetorics and the climate crisis together. Thanks for coming on, Todd, and giving us another way to talk about and think about science. 
It's been great. So flattered to be here with you, Jonathan. It's It's been really wonderful. Earthly is a production of Clemson University and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Listeners can find archived episodes of Earthly, transcripts, and learn more about our guests by visiting clemson.edu slash earthly.